listening to BC Museum Portraits, and I'm project manager Spencer Stewart. In this episode, we'll be speaking with manager of the Qualicum Beach Museum, Nathaniel Waddell, administrator Lorraine Bell, as well as the curator, Catherine Gagnon. Natanya, Lorraine, Catherine, thank you so much for uh, joining me today and speaking uh, about the Qualcomm Beach Museum and uh, archives. Let's start with all three of you. How did you get involved with, with museums in the first place? What drew you to the profession and specifically how did you get involved with uh, Qualcomm Beach? I'm Natanya and I'm the manager of the Qualcomm Beach Museum. I have been in this position for um, ten and a half years. My background is actually, I have a degree in archives and records management, and in my early days in my career, I worked mostly in universities in the capacity of records manager, but often that department was within the archives. I have a passion for archives, history, love old historical photos, and the, the stories they can tell just from a photo. So always been passionate about that in my own family. I'm sort of the gatherer of the history. But how I stumbled into museum work is almost by accident. Actually, my connection with Paul Kim is I've lived here for 25 years, came here to, you know, to live and raise a family, and uh, but was always still working out of Victoria, so commuting back and forth. And it was at a conference that I met some volunteers from the Falcon Beach archives and realized, whoa, we have a museum and archives in my own community. I guess as when you're raising small children, you're just so busy that you don't maybe look outwards that much. Anyhow, I started volunteering here, and that was almost 15, 16 years ago. And then I started, hired on a contract to develop the school programs back in 2009, and I've been here ever since. So I started about seven years ago, and like Natanya, started out as a volunteer in the collections, and was interested in the collection and how it worked and how it was, what it was all about. I didn't have any background in museums. I did my training in geography, but I was starting to do some studies about museum education, particularly adult education in community-based settings. And then I thought, do it about museums. So I wanted to learn more about museums and then ended up making my study about small museums on Vancouver Island, particularly this idea that they could be agents of change. So wrote my thesis about that and Catherine participated in it as a case study for her other job, which was great. Learned a lot from her. And then I ended up working part-time as administrator. And then just, as Natalia said, just go talk from there. Uh, I'm Catherine. I'm the newest member of staff. Probably the happiest. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm really thrilled to be here, let me tell you. I, I was the curator manager of the Cowichan Valley Museum and Archives in Duncan for 17 years. And I did do museum studies, actually, before I took that job. During that time, I also got to do graduate studies, which was one of the best things I ever did at UVic, because I got to apply what I was learning directly to my museum. Mm -hmm. And it was just an absolute joy, looking at collections and reinterpreting them. That was a real journey in terms of community engagement, because that means looking at things that you have in your collection and seeking the knowledge and expertise of people in the community to tell you about them mm -hmm. and to share that with visitors. Mm -hmm. So that's probably one of the biggest lessons of, or pursuits that I personally enjoyed 
because I was genuinely curious. And the idea of, of inclusivity is something that we're all, not all, I, I shouldn't say all, but a lot of us are living now. And we have a lot of power as small museums to do that. And what, what was the nature of, of the early collections of, of the Qualcomm Beach Museum? What was it strong in? Who were some of the, the people that were influencing uh, th those decisions? The Historical Society that's behind the museum was actually incorporated in the mid-1980s, 1984 to be exact. And it was a group of local citizens that came together because they wanted to mark a milestone, which was the 100th anniversary of the first land title that was granted to this area. So they, they were obviously historical enthusiasts and they came together for this and then they officially incorporated the society. And when working with the town, they, they required this small brick building on the premises, the original powerhouse of Qualcomm Beach, which they wanted to turn into a museum. Mm -hmm. So there was a call out to the community to basically donate artifacts and archival material of relevance. But if I can say, in the early days, pretty much everything was accepted and taken in uh, that was brought uh, to them and actually officially acquired and integrated into the collection. We very quickly faced a space issue that for the longest time was maybe not really addressed. The forefathers that meant extremely well, that were, were thankful for these people because they allowed us to have a collection. And actually we have a fabulous archival collection too, thanks to some of these early individuals that were passionate about keeping the history. One of these fellows was a businessman himself and when he would see a business shut down or close, he would get, gather their records mm -hmm. because he was afraid otherwise that story would be lost. And so we're very thankful for that. But there was also, as I said, Lorraine will mention that or talk about that further, but there was parts of the collection that just were not uh, relevant. Mm -hmm. And so we did that shift where we started really looking at the collection. It coincided with us developing an official policy, acquisition policy, with a very clear mandate to acquire objects, artifacts, archival material that were relevant to the local history of Qualicum Beach mm -hmm. itself. And actually, if anything, I think creating that policy empowered us to be able to say no. Mm. And often when you're facing, you're a member of this community and you're facing these citizens, it's sometimes hard to say no. But when you have this official policy, then it's your backup plan. Just after they came up with the collections policy and they realized that a lot of the objects in the collection were irrelevant or just not within the collections mandate, we did a deaccessioning procedure and that took quite a few years and we did it formally and there was a committee struck and discussion about whether or not an object would be kept and then if it was chosen to be deaccessioned then we made a report to the board and they voted on it as well and mm -hmm. we also had to learn about how to go about deaccessioning <laughs> and the proper way to do it and, yeah. yeah but we didn't know that you could just give things back mm. to the original donor and no. so we had to learn that and yep. that it has to go to a different place to be publicly auctioned or donated to another museum. Some of our things, they did fit with other collections really well. And that was a point Natanya brought up was that we are a retirement destination. So sometimes people will move here and they'll have amazing you know, photo albums and family Bibles that are just full of their family history. But maybe they've only lived five years here. For example, I repatriated a photo album from Red Deer. Mm -hmm. and it had really mm -hmm. beautiful historical photographs of Red Deer, and huh. they were thrilled to have it. Mm -hmm. So it was just a one way to transfer that to a more appropriate place. In that process of taking stock of the collection and, and, and deaccessioning, what were some holdings in the collections that surprised you? There were a whole categories of things dangerous objects that we had mm. no business collecting, and antique fire 
extinguisher that you had to smash and it would spray chemical everywhere and put the fire out, but apparently huge, toxic and dangerous and film canisters that needed to be stored in a different way. So the dangerous stuff, we try to get rid of. Old batteries. So when working with the collection of volunteers, it's always no safety first and wear gloves and things and don't just be opening stuff without, you know. And some of this disposal costs us money because we yes. realize that when we have toxic materials, you just don't dispose you of them. You them actually yeah. have to go through this official, you know, process. Yeah. Another category was just like head scratchers, like plastic fruit. And it's like, well, maybe it was plastic fruit that somebody, there's a story attached to it. We're okay. It doesn't have to be valuable intrinsically if its value is in its story and its history. Nope, it's just a plastic lemon. Hmm. No provenance. No, just, just, this is wonderful display material, but we're just going to move it out of the collections area so no one thinks that it's a valuable object that needs to be wrapped in tissue and with a little paper trail. It's just a plastic hmm. lemon or, and there was a lot, the baskets. So sometimes they were doing fundraisers with garage sales. So they got a lot of donations for garage sales and some of that crept into our collection. Mm. The final category is stuff that it's probably has a wonderful story in front of us to it, but it, that's gotten lost in the paperwork mm. somewhere. So it's more, okay, don't get rid of it, just hang on to it, because it might be something important and it's maybe it's gotten separated from its paperwork, but mm. it's in that room somewhere. Mm -hmm. And one example I can think of is this World War I rattle. And it, it, it was accessioned at one point as a World War I gas rattle, and someone else had understood it as a child's toy. Huh. So catching things like that too, and that was one really strong argument for focusing our collections policy was, we've got some really wonderful objects, and we don't want them buried under mm -hmm. stuff that never should have been in there in the first place. Yeah, yeah, so we can focus on valuing things and telling their stories properly. Has the museum always been situated in this building that we're sitting in today, or has it gone through some moves? Well, this building is the original powerhouse of Port Alberni. Mm -hmm. So it was in structure, it was done by the same architect. If you look from the outside, it's very similar to our powerhouse, uh, our original powerhouse, the smaller brick building. But this was dismantled in port and purchased by the Historical Society mm -hmm. and rebuilt brick by brick mm -hmm. by volunteers here. And it, this building opened its doors as our main museum building in 1995. Now the building itself was changed from its original uh, look um, in Port Alberni. But the, the bricks and the steel and whatnot were, were recuperated from there. And that process of deaccessioning, when did that happen roughly? When I started volunteering here, so about seven years ago, okay. that deaccessioning process. And we just were working through and trying to catalog things. And then I, I think we started off with thinking we needed new shelves so it could be better organized so we could work with the space that we had. Mm -hmm. And so I think Natanya had put together a proposal to get some really great shelving. And we heard from the Museum Assistance Program that they were sponsoring this reorg program. Oh, if you do this little program, then you can get access to some funds that you can help pay for your shelves. And then at the same time, there was another, the Canada 150 grants were coming and that was substantial. So we carried those two. But part of getting the last bit of funds for the last bank of shelves, we had to do this reorg process, and that involved a lot of really valuable training for us, and it wasn't actually just a little thing. It was a huge endeavor that took us two years to do. It helped us really get, get ahead of it more than we would have. They taught us like really practical things. Take anything that isn't accessioned, isn't part of your collection, and just get it out of there. In your transition over from 
the Couch and Valley Museum mm -hmm. and, and moving into the Qualcomm Beach Museum. What were some elements of the collection and, and its history that, that struck you, that kind of excited you in the, uh, the early days to get involved with it? The thing is, uh, I have been aware of this museum for many years and have always enjoyed it. One of the things that I would say is that there have been just multiple parallels between the way that I undertook the work I did at the Couch and Valley Museum and how the Qualicum Beach Museum works. So we both came out of historical societies. And when we talk about collections and the mass, everything that was collected, my desk that I worked at for 17 years had an accession number because they accessioned everything. <laughs> but that comes from the shift from a volunteer point of view, yeah. like we want to have a museum. And it's really, sadly, really based on nostalgia, which is very dangerous. And I think that's the progression mm. now is that we are looking at what we do far more carefully. And there's just been so many parallels, both working with Natanya and Lorraine over the years. I'm aware of what has happened here because, because of my friendship with both Lorraine and Natanya. And that's probably the most powerful thing in a small museum is that we can embrace these uh, concepts of inclusivity and diversity. And that's really exciting in a small place. Because in the larger urban centers, there's so much more infrastructure, there's so much more research, etc. But we have amazing stories in our communities. And the more that we open up and say, oh, this is missing from our narrative. In my former job, I was working with the Landscapes of Injustice, one of many community partners. So Landscapes of Injustice is a University of Victoria research project that explored the dispossession and internment of Jeff during the 1940s, during World War II. And the goal was to both unearth just a trove of information out, whether it's Library and Archives in Canada or in the community, so much was gathered from the community, and the idea that it's still being redressed. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing, they developed the Nikkei Museum, National Museum, along with RBCM, and Landscapes of Injustice, developed this exhibit called Broken Promises. It's exquisite, I haven't seen it, but there's an online version. But what they did is uh, they created a traveling exhibit. And so this is what's coming to the Qualicum Beach Museum. So this is an opportunity to say to people in our community, look at the story. I know you can't get to Vancouver or Burnaby, but look, we're bringing part of these stories here for you. But what we also get to do, and this has always been the exciting part for me, is we get to look into our own community and say, who is related to this story? Who's affected by it? And in fact, we were so lucky here in Qualicum because the Broken Promises uh, exhibit is partly based on the stories of seven narrators. And, which is a remarkable, lovely approach. But one of the narrators, actually, her mother was born here, Shima Umemoto. 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 <laughs> yeah. And uh, so she, Sachiko Okuda, was actually interviewed and participated and was featured um, in the Broken Promises exhibit. And she is now, through Lorraine and Natanya and now myself, assisting us in telling the story about her mother. The, the story that she focused on was her father, Hiroshi Okuda, but now we're going to focus on her mother, Shima, who, who lived here you know, with her family. So that's one aspect that has not been featured anywhere. And as a museum, this is the platform to say to the community, look at these other stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are some stories, narratives that you want to explore in the community that you don't see reflected in the collection at the moment? In light of Truth and Reconciliation, we definitely wanted to, to work with our local First Nations. And there was historically an exhibit in the museum, but it was not representative of the local First Nations. It was masks and maybe some objects of art, but that were from another um, 
cultural group and not our local group. Mm -hmm. So first, there's a whole developing of a relationship in order to get to the point of an exhibit. And we were fortunate to have three years in a row uh, summer students um, from the local First Nations that came to work in our summer student program mm -hmm. that we have ongoing. And one of which, for two consecutive years, was Jesse Rikalma, with whom we still work very closely today. And we were fortunate to get a grant from the BC Arts Council in this particular case, and Jesse worked closely, worked with Kate from Victoria as a museum professional as well, but really he was given the full space to, to, to create this exhibit that he felt was going to be meaningful to them, tell the story, share the culture, but in a way that they wanted to share it. And I believe one of the main messages he wanted to share was the fact that many museum exhibits, First Nations exhibits, seem to be rooted in the past, as if the First Nations are part of the past. The clear message here was that they are vibrant, they are alive, they're strong, their culture is strong today. And in terms of Qualcomm Beach, they're actually really working hard on the revitalization of their language. There was a vibrancy that he wanted to share here. Jesse Rakama and his father, who's an elder in the community and also sits on our board, is part of our display committee. I'd like to hope and think that we work beyond collaboration and consultation, but we co-create. Mm -hmm. And that's true from, for all the exhibits. So it's not doesn't stop with this exhibit or the First Nations Gallery. It, it, it continues throughout all the exhibits that we continue to develop and create. And one of the most recent ones is this Fish, Trees and Folk that I mentioned earlier. But we're working with them, with Jesse and his father, to continue um, indigenizing the stories that we tell throughout these other exhibits. And we're hoping eventually to add more uh, Pentlatch language as well, when they are ready to share. With regard to the language revitalization, that is a gift for a small museum. When you start establishing relationships, and I think that's, I, I have recognized that ever since you started talking about it, Natanya. Just how amazing it is to be able to work with somebody. Mm -hmm. I, I think that with so many small museums, or rather museums in general, when we have visitors from away, there's the perception that First Nations stopped at the 1890s. And this is a very dangerous perception. It's not their fault. Mm. It, it's just that is the perception they, they come with. And so often they, I know that in my museum, somebody would say, oh, are, are there any First Nations? And which is really ironic because we have the largest First Nation in BC, which is mm -hmm. Cowichan. Mm -hmm. But it, it showed what the public, or at least part of the public, was thinking. So absolutely right, Natanya, like showing this vibrant, contemporary, future-thinking community is really powerful. Catherine just touched on something, Indigenous belongings. So when Jesse was a summer student here with us at the museum, I actually happened to have visited that summer the UBC Museum and some of the exhibits there, and they were referring to Indigenous belongings, which I, it caught my attention. I thought that's an interesting term. And I came back and had this with chat with Jesse, and um, in the process of that summer, he developed an Indigenous belonging policy for our museum. Hmm. And that recognizes and differentiates these objects as opposed to artifacts that are often objects that were more part of the past, or these indigenous belongings are not. They are, are, are objects that are still often utilized today, so why put them in the past and, and make them static that way? And, and also, this indigenous belongings policy allows us to recognize these objects as they're brought in, but we do not um, add them to our collection. We do not actually acquire them, we merely hold them, for the local First Nations. We notify them when these objects come in, we, we document the object that is brought in, and then we let them know that we have this 
for them. But basically, as I say, we're just the, the, the holders of these objects. Mm -hmm. If the display committee feels that this object might be good to add to the display or whatnot, then we will do, but never without consent or their approval, their knowledge. How do you go about building your exhibitions and what are some that are coming up and what are some in your mind at the moment that you'd like to uh, put together? The fact that we're a small museum and we have such strong community ties enriches the exhibits that we do mm. because we know so many people because it's a small community. I was mentioning Asachiko Okuda, but there are other people that's to do with the story of her mother Shima. But there's other stories for the Broken Promises exhibit that we're exploring as well. And there, the connections, it's also the connections in the, in the museum community. It's a layering of relying on relationships, whether it's in our community or in our professional community. I think that's part of a paradigm shift that happened in the 90s and 2000s, where the, the curator was no longer considered the expert. It's a refreshing change because how can we be more expert than the people who are actually have these wonderful artifacts? The freedom part is an important one. To, to recognize for small museums and I would actually think that not being bound by these very strict rules that yeah. bigger museums have to follow gave us the opportunity to really do this co-creation in, in yeah. our case with local First Nations. If we came to the table with these strict rules and these hierarchical systems that we'd have to follow, I'm not sure it would have been so successful, the mm -hmm. collaboration. I, I feel like, out of necessity anyway, we didn't have the choice because there's two of us part-time employees, now three of us part-time employees. We do want to create professional exhibits by all means, but there's also this necessity and this reality that we face every day that we don't have a team, we don't have the means, we don't have the people with the electronic knowledge, and we have to do it ourselves. We're not as yeah. linear, we don't get the plan and then build it done, like people come in and they're like, oh, that's not such and such, that's such and such. Oh, okay, we can change that. We're open to feedback and consultation in an ongoing way. Yes. And oftentimes community members, because this is a community museum and people are from the community, someone will come in and they'll just share a story and be like, oh, we can update mm -hmm. our, our exhibit then. We're nimble in that way. Mm -hmm. It's really nice. And this is getting back to what Catherine says about the sharing ideas amongst ourselves. So what was the exhibit that came and it was all about sharing stories that hadn't the fight for justice on the coast. We hosted it here and one of the stories was about the Japanese Canadian internment and dispossession. And we had one object and it was this beautiful Japanese fishing float. And it was just in the collection, it was Japanese fishing float. We just put it out, but we didn't put any information with it because we didn't have any, but we thought it fit visually mm -hmm, and it was beautiful mm -hmm, and stuff. And then the person who donated it said, I had a Japanese Canadian friend as a kid and he, his family were interned and they gave me this, so I donated it to the museum. And like, we had no idea. So like, we got they, the story they after didn't the fact. They didn't see fit to yeah. that yeah, yeah, about yeah, that yeah, object. Yeah. Once we learned that, maybe there's more to learn about that story. We actually heard from locals that there were no Japanese Canadians living here. But that having that exhibit sparked our curiosity about that. So then there, there was one little photo in the archives. Oh, there's a little girl, I wonder who she is. And then there was this whole learning about what was happening in Deep Bay, and then we've recently learned that there was actually a shingle mill run by Japanese Canadians out in Coombs that we didn't know about. So it's as Catherine says, like once you have the intention of learning more about stories that haven't been shared, then 
there's the bright yeah. stories and the darker stories yeah. that emerge out of this. And yeah, some of them are, you know, happy. Well, so one of the links to Colicum is H.R. McMillan. Mm -hmm. Oh, right, yeah. And he <laughs> has, um, well, his descendants still live here, the, the, his granddaughters, who we've been communicating with over the more recent years. But he had a, a family, a, a summer home here in Qualicum on Judges Road. And in more recent times, we found out that he's the fellow who purchased Kagetsu's um, mill. That is the real challenge, though, of being a small museum where you do have community members so intimately involved. Mm -hmm. And that is, you can't take that stance that an urban museum can. Like, it's not as personal. Here, right. if you yeah. bring up the dark yeah. history, yeah. there's fallout. I know I've experienced yeah. that myself. It's still always always best to tell the truth that has been omitted. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. will often cause problems within an organization and people will take offense. But there is a, there has to be, this is part of the decolonization, there has to be a shift in the power and there's gonna be fallout. Mm -hmm. And even a small museum, which as I said, is, mm -hmm. can be dangerously nostalgic, needs to embrace those. And the ones that do are really brave. I do believe in the spirit of truth and reconciliation that, that those messages need to be stated, mm -hmm. that, that people were dispossessed in order to build, in mm -hmm. this case, the, this province or the country. Mm -hmm. what, are, yeah, yeah. what are some uh, changes you're seeing in the community presently that leading to some to shifts in the, in the local history? Mm -hmm. What are some things you're seeing changing that you've got an eye to? So this community was also known to be, of course, a big tourist destination. And this is historically going way, way back. If you get a chance to listen to our oral histories, we had a big hotel here that attracted people from Hollywood. All the governor generals of Canada came here. So it was a destination and a place, I think, that attracted people for the fishing, for the beauty of the site, for, you know, tourism. But when a community focuses on becoming a retirement community, this aspect of tourism and, and, and traction goes down. Mm. And it, it is not a strong, viable community. Often retirees are not that interested in the community they retire to. They've worked hard all their lives. They come here, they want to have fun, they want to enjoy, they want to leave in the winter months. So they're not true members of the community. And we, we really felt that, and I'm saying as a committee member, but as a parent, we almost lost our high school. And us parents freaked out when we heard that. Like, what is a community without a high school? It made no sense. And we really thought that this was the effects of some of the decisions that were made at a municipal level, perhaps not realizing the, the effects of them. And I think that is definitely something we want to capture. And I'd like to believe that maybe a positive side of the pandemic is, is that we're shifting again now. With the pandemic, a lot of people, of course, started working from home. Mm -hmm. And we've seen an, an influx of younger families come mm -hmm. um, from the mainland for better quality of life and because now they have the opportunity of not having to be in a big uh, center to work. I'd like to see maybe a shift, maybe that's coming, that's a positive side. And that's a story I think we want to capture eventually in stories we're telling. But we definitely want to diversify. Thinking about the fish trees and folk. First of all, we didn't want to talk about the extractive way, like the logging and the fishing and the getting the resources and building town. It's wanted to think about people's relationship mm. to, to land. Yeah both First Nations and, and not First Nations, and um, relationship to the environment, to the Herring Run, which is this huge event that happens every year, but every year it's getting smaller, and the, the ecology is changing really fast, but are, are we going to be capable of like, acknowledging it and, mm -hmm. and moving forward in a more sustainable way? Mm -hmm. So 
I think that's really neat to combine the study of local history with looking forward to what kind of how do you want to be in the future? The worldview is changing so much. I mean, in terms of, you talked about the retirement community, and it's amazing that younger families are coming in because younger families now, of course, the children are learning with the new K-12 curriculum, and so there's far more awareness about inclusivity, diversity, the environment, and so there's going to be greater expectations as we move forward. And the sort of older view, and, and it's very sad when Natanya described people coming here and not really being connected to the place, it's just a nice place. It's sad because there's so many, the other people, all kinds of people are so invested right in this place and in, in the land. Being a museum, you have an opportunity to present stories and possibly change people's minds about things or to learn something new. So I guess we just take all of that in our stride. But that being said, we're in a shift, aren't we? We're, we are in a world. We're in a big shift and a lot of changes are, are, are taking place and perhaps even in this overall structure, we're yeah. going to see some dismantling and some changes. Yeah. I feel that's where well, we're at. We've come a long way as an organization and, and people um, are more aware or, or more open or more concerned and definitely more, in French we say à l'écoute, but more <laughs> listening to our staff Yes. And, and what we're bringing to the table or maybe some of our recommendations and sharing what we're um, taking in in terms of professional development and whatnot. So there's an openness mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Um, that was not always there and that I will say I really truly appreciate. Mm. I think too it's the shift in language and the terminology that we use. For example, talking about decolonization, the more that these concepts are discussed, it normalizes the, the discussion and then therefore it doesn't feel so strange for some people who may not have considered these concepts. I, that's what I love about this museum, that it's taking these ideas that are national ideas and interpreting them right here in, in our small space. That's brilliant. Thank you all for sitting down and having a, a conversation with me today. Uh, all the best for the future and we really look forward to the, the upcoming exhibitions and uh, various other programs that you get, you get uh, going. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been another BC Museum Portrait. BC Museum Portraits is done in partnership with the BC Museum Association. To hear more portraits, and view the accompanying images made by project photographer Taiyu Hayward, please go to museum.bc.ca. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time.